Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of our Seven Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in the future. You can learn more about our long-term investing approach and see all seven of our favorite stock market opportunities each and every month at seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. And for a limited time, we're giving away a free first month of our starter membership with the promo code MADNESS. What do investing and evolutionary biology have in common? That's not a joke or a riddle. It's actually the topic of our conversation today. I'm very excited to welcome Pulak Prasad. He is an international author who wrote the book, What Darwinism Taught Me About Investing, and also the CEO of Nalanda Capital. It's a Singapore-based firm managing about $5 billion in capital, primarily with Indian equities. Uh, Pulak, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Thanks very much for joining me for the 7 Investing Podcast today. Thank you, Simon. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Really appreciate it. It's a privilege to be here. Let's start at the top of this here. Uh, let, let's talk about the status quo of the investing industry today. Uh, the active management industry is a grinder, right? We, we've seen for several years that most active managers cannot outperform the broader based market indices. Uh, perhaps can you start with kind of giving us an, an overview of the industry today? Maybe what prompted you to write this book and uh, maybe even perhaps a couple of the things active managers are doing that might lead to their extinction? Yeah, uh, thanks, thanks, Simon. So my background actually is in, in private equity, not public equity. We used to do a little bit of public equity investing at my previous firm, Bobo Pinkers, but I decided to set up Nalanda in uh, 2007, primarily because I thought the right long-term uh, investing model for India, and frankly, I think for most countries, is public market investing in, in phenomenal businesses. Um, and the one thing that the private equity model did not allow me to do was to uh, stay in businesses permanently, which is what uh, my, my model at, at Nalanda, we have an evergreen fund that basically allows me to stay over the very, very long run in, in any business. Uh, the question around active management, I mean, we've, uh, we know all the reasons why uh, you know, managers behave the way they do. It is largely related to incentives. Um, it is, uh, as, as I write in the book that in a paradoxical way, the very fact that uh, managers, you know, want to beat the market, ensure that they don't beat the market. Uh, because one is trying to, uh, in trying to beat the market, one is trying to do things that one would otherwise not do. For example, uh, so, so let's, let's step back. What are the index made of? The index is made of, uh, let's take S&P 500, 500 best businesses in the, in the country, right? Um, or of millions of businesses in the US. It is, at some level, it would be extraordinarily hard to beat that index unless, unless one invests in better than average businesses than the S&P 500. I mean, logically, because otherwise you won't be able to beat the index. Um, and, and that becomes really tough because that kind of model leads to underperformance over months or sometimes even years. And active managers, maybe driven by their clients, maybe not entirely their fault, um, uh, really can't, can't take that because maybe their clients can't take it. Um, and, and we've seen as a result, big flow, huge flow to the passive management industry uh, over the past many years in the US and frankly in India as well. Um, so it is, it is an issue. I'm not sure what the solution is, except as Buffett has said for years, find high quality businesses and stay in them forever, which is what we do. And apologies, a correction. The name of the book is actually what I learned about investing from Darwin. Uh, you know, one of the things that you did say about in this book was that you'd like to prioritize risk first and then return later. Uh, explain right. to, it kind of aligns with what you just said, but can you explain that a little bit farther for me as well? 
So I was looking at your seven principles, Simon, and I realized that actually your first principle is exactly that because your first principle says it's personal. And what I write in the book, literally in the first chapter is uh, to the asking the fund manager, are you willing to bet your life on this investment, right? You're raising, you're putting other people's money, but are you willing to bet your life? And I think that when you say it's personal, it's not exactly that, but when I read the, the, uh, the sort of commentary on that, but it's very similar, is, is it your own money, right? Are you, are, you, are you really willing to bet your life on it? And the reason we put risk before return is that our philosophy is that we want to be permanent owners of high quality businesses. That's the starting point. If you take that as a starting point, then we have to think of risk first because I don't have an option of exit, right? Once I enter, I, I have to stay there. So as a result, I need to eliminate large, many types of risk that maybe other fund managers would be able to take because they'll say, look, I'll exit in two years time, double my money and leave. So, so we, as a result of our strategy, as a result of our philosophy of being a permanent owner in quality businesses, uh, we start with, we can't price, the, when I say we don't take certain risks, we don't price certain kinds of risks. And, 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 and we have no sort of FOMO on, on those kinds of areas. So for example, take, take governance standard, right? Uh, it's a big issue in emerging markets and definitely in India. To, to a lesser extent, I would say in, in a country like the US. Uh, and uh, we will never take that risk. We will never say we will invest in someone who's got a dodgy reputation, has not treated minority shareholders well, but you know, it's available at 10 times P when the market P is 23. So yeah, you know, I'll, we don't do that. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. Maybe some people, it works for some people. It won't work for us. So that's what I mean when I say uh, risk first, because it's sort of like it's personal. You know, I'm putting my money uh, to work. Um, and, and so I need to think of that first. Yeah, Pulak, this is so refreshing to hear because we are in the age of high turnover and, you know, getting in and out of positions in a year or less. Uh, yeah. It certainly is refreshing, like you say, when we talk about buy and hold, you know, you, I think you describe it as as lazy investing, you know, letting things ride for long periods of time, which is exactly what we want to endorse as well. Uh, related to that, I, I'd like to ask a follow-up question, though, is, is how do you think about position sizing, right? If you're finding great companies, you're letting yeah. them ride, hopefully there's there's price appreciation along the way, but like, what is a large position size for you? How long will you let something run? And then also similarly related to that, too, is, is how do you think about selling uh, is there right. anything that you would see that would actually cause you to sell a position? So, so, uh, so, uh, so the position sizing works only the entry for us uh, in two ways. One is that we have a odd rule in India that we can't invest more than ten percent in a single business, ten percent of that company. So that automatic. So if it's a three hundred million dollar company, I can't invest more than thirty million dollars. Right. So that's one. And the second is with our investors, we have an agreement that we will not put initially going in more than fifteen percent of the fund in a single business. So take. Uh, our fund, you know, um, $5 million, we can't put more than $750 million in a single position without approval from our advisory committee and so on. We have exceeded that, that number to up, we've gone up to 20% in a couple of situations. But once we've done that, then we will not sell. We will not rebalance. So in an extreme case, I think one of our funds, we have two funds. In, one, in the first fund, uh, we, our largest position reached 29% of the fund and, and we just let it be. In, in, uh, in our second fund, uh, as, we, as we speak, I think close to 20% of the fund is in one position. We don't, we don't do any rebalancing. So we are either pregnant or we are not. There is no middle path for us, which means if we don't, if we conclude that we don't like the business, we'll fully exit. Which gets me to the question of that second question you asked is do, when do we exit? We have exited our situations. So under the following situations, number one is when there has been an MA. So one of our companies got acquired by strategic investors. It's happened to us thrice. 
Second is when there's been a bad, really, really bad capital allocation by the business. And this has happened to us twice in our 16-year history. We've been around for 16 years. And the third is when we believe there's an irreparable damage to the business. Which, so, so for example, we have gone with a certain thesis in the business and let's say it works well for two years. But after that, for whatever reason, it stops working either because the management is distracted or because the they got unlucky or some other reason. Um, even then, we actually don't sell immediately. We are willing to wait for many, many quarters, eight, nine, 10, 12 quarters, not just one or two quarters. Uh, because nothing goes up in a straight line, I found in my my uh, 30 years of, of being in the corporate world, and things will always go up and down. So we're very patient. But if we do conclude that this business is damaged, then we will exit. Uh, but other than that, we will not. So we will not exit on valuation for this one. Uh, we just won't. We'll just keep carrying it uh, at, at whatever, whatever uh, price it is. But those are the three conditions under which we would exit. So we exited, I would say, if you remove the MA piece, our average exit has been about once every one and a half years which is obviously very, very small. And that only because we concluded that we made a mistake. And is there a concentrated portfolio? You know, if you're talking about 29% positions, 20% position, are you holding yeah. 10 to 15 in the, in the fund? Yeah, so basically in the first one, we have now about 11 positions, top five contribute to about 75% of the fund. In the second one, about 20 odd positions, top five account for about 77, 78% of the fund. So it's very concentrated. Yeah, perfect. Uh, Pulak, you also have a very, uh, very interesting background. You know, you have a diversity of experiences. You mentioned 30 years in the corporate world there. I know that you were an engineer at one point. Uh, you right. were a consultant at one point. You went to private equity for a while. You're doing public equities now. But um, I, I guess I wanted to ask it. It's not as it's not quite as common that I'll chat with someone who has an interest in evolutionary biology like you do. Right. Uh, what got you into this and then kind of what drew the parallels to investing? So it's a very it's very odd. I never I never liked biology when I was in, in college and I was a math math nerd in some sense. Uh, but um, like like many people like you as well, I'm sure you read a lot of Charlie Munger and, and Buffett, right? Uh, which which I did as well. Charlie Munger, uh, Vesco Financial used to be the chairman. I, I think he still is until he got acquired by by uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And every year he talks to uh, the shareholders. And in the year 2000, <clears throat> one of the questions he got was, "Can you recommend a book?" Um, a good book to read, and he recommended The Selfish Gene. And I read that 2000 uh, notes of Esco Financial in 2002. And I said, what is The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins? It's a very famous book. Uh, Dawkins is a great writer. And I bought Selfish Gene and I completely got hooked on. And I, uh, I understood that by reading that book that I did not actually understand Darwinian theory, which I thought I did, but I clearly didn't. And it was uh, shockingly simple and uh, very, very different from what I thought. And that really got hooked on to me, uh, you know, hooked me to evolutionary biology. And then the more I read about evolution, and by the time I was an investor, the more I started seeing parallels to investing in some sense. Um, so when I created Nalanda, when I started Nalanda in 2007, I started writing quarterly letters to my investors, which are, which are every quarter I do. Um, my next this quarterly letter is going to go tomorrow, for example. And in those letters, just to make investing interesting, I never write about macro. I don't write about markets because my view is no one knows anything. So, so I write about uh, investing and I write about evolutionary biology and I draw parallels between evolution and investing. And a lot of the investors found that very, very interesting over the years. And a few of them started saying, you must write a book. But I didn't want the book to be a series of essays because that, that it, you could have a book like that. But I wanted to create a thread of or our investing philosophy, which is rests around three pillars like yours does in seven, which is don't take big risks, invest in a great business at a, at, at a fair price. And third, don't sell. Right. Uh, so, so, but I, I could put together that with parallels to evolutionary theory, just because I've been doing this for the last 20 years. 
and I think it it came uh, well together at least for me. Uh, we'll see what the what the readers think, but it came well together. That is fantastic. Well, we're talking about Warren Buffett and Berkshire and Charlie Munger. I know that you're a huge fan of, of theirs, just like we are as well. Yeah. Um, probably the greatest, if not the greatest, one of the greatest investors of our time. And yeah. uh, we are, we're all very familiar with, with Buffett and Munger and all of them. But uh, perhaps if there's any criticism of Warren Buffett, it, it would be around innovation. You know, even Buffett himself has said two of the biggest mistakes he's ever made for his shareholders was missing out on Google and missing out on Amazon. Uh, he he said specifically that he missed out on Google because it was not at the price that he wanted to buy it at. And right. with Amazon, I believe he said he was surprised with how quickly Jeff Bezos was able to disrupt the retail industry. Um, right. per perhaps I, I want to ask maybe the question is is what how do, how do you approach innovation with a fund right. that you know has got the three pillars like you said you know no big risks you right. want a fair price uh, and then never sell. But then is there is there a place for kind of these small up and coming innovative companies or, or how do you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I, I would put Google and Amazon in actually two very different buckets. I would do Google, but not Amazon. I would never do Amazon, but I would do Google because Google is a media business in my view. It's a, it's a, it's a yellow pages business of, of infinite variety, right? And we do have, uh, we did have three in our portfolio. One of them got acquired by strategic investor, which is think about a local Google, equivalent of Yelp um, in India. It was called Just Dial. It is called Just Dial, but, but we exited because a strategic investor acquired it. We have a firm called Nokri.com, which is equivalent of your monster.com. Uh, it's by far the leader in India. It's a phenomenal business. Another one called matrimony.com, which is a marriage uh, sort of uh, site, website, not dating really, but marriage. But that, those I count as media businesses. Um, uh, so, and they're very innovative and we would put money in them. Our criteria is very simple. First, show me the money, right? So, which means that uh, we would not have invested in Google at an early stage, but when Google started making money, and if it was, it had come to a price that we liked, we would have bought it. Uh, I, I don't have the history of Google, so I don't know whether Google ever came to the price we would have liked. Like we did buy Nokri, the one I talked about, that we buy, did buy Matrimony, because we consider them media, network effect, winner takes all type businesses, which we can understand. And there are many parallels for those businesses uh, as well, including the Austwine Yellow Pages businesses, which were phenomenal, or a newspaper, Austwine newspaper businesses, for example. Uh, Amazon uh, uh, falls in a different category. Interesting, you mentioned Buffett and Amazon. I actually stated in one of the endings of one of my chapters where I quote Buffett saying, uh, oh, I missed Amazon. And I say that, fine, but I'm, I would have missed it and I have no qualms about it. Because Amazon just doesn't fit the bucket that we want, which is a focused, disciplined investor. And it is a real oddity. It is a very, very odd animal. And my view is that I'm happy missing out on odd animals because I would not then mistake, uh, you know, I'll miss on one Amazon, but I'll invest in 50 jokers who are one Amazon-like, but they'll never be Amazon. So I'm comfortable with that, right? Uh, I think one of the big uh, things that, uh, that I've learned over the years and that has brought us, I think, to where we are is this complete lack of FOMO. Complete, you know, I don't care if you're making money the way you are doing, good for you. There are lots of paths that, lots of roads that lead to Rome. Ours is this one. Um, so yeah, so we will invest in innovative businesses, absolutely. But they need to show me money first. And they need to, I need to be convinced that this advantage will be sustainable to some extent, to a great extent. Could you quantify that a bit more? I, it sounds like there's a very qualitative part of the process. You know, you're looking at the risk, yeah. you're trying to stay away from bad things with bad governance. Things. Are there specific metrics quantitatively, though, that you're looking for? Is it cash flows? Yeah. You know, what are some of the things you're defining a great business by? So, so uh, I, I start my, my second chapter with this, with this question, right? So you want to be an investor and you go to a website, 
you open Morningstar or whatever that gurufocus.com or wherever you get your stock price data. And then what do you do, right? Because there is a bazillion piece of information there. There's revenue growth, there is EBITDA growth, there is margin, there is cash flow, there is, of course, interviews by management, there is 10K, 10Q, balance sheet. I mean, there's a billion things. What do you do, right? Because to, to, to start. And we have done a very simple thing, which is we've taken a quantitative metric. It's called return on invested capital, which you very well know. So our metric is very simple. We want historical high returns on invested capital. Let me break that into two parts. One, historical. I don't want to buy stories, which means that if someone comes and says, I'm a highly innovative company, but I'm only 5% return on capital. And here are the 10 things I'm doing, including hiring you know, McKinsey to uh, sort of advise me and this XPNG CEO that will take my return on capital over the next five years to 35%. We're going to take that meeting after 10 years because first they have to reach 35%. Then they have to demonstrate for five years that they have had high returns on capital and then we will have a problem. So one is historical. We are historical animals. Second, by high, let me give you the number. The median return on capital of our portfolio when we invested is 41%. So these are very, very high quality businesses, right? Um, and, and, uh, the, uh, and, and that we do not compromise. So that's a quantitative measure that we take up front for short-tasting companies. So if a company doesn't have those kinds of returns on capital over the past five to 10 years, of course, you can have two bad years where you can go, go down to you know, two or 3% because COVID hit. But, but if you remove those situations, um, then we want very high stock returns on capital. If it doesn't satisfy that, we will not even evaluate it. We will not touch it. So as a result, for example, if it's a new age business running huge losses, and has got multi-billion dollar market cap, I'm not going to buy it for free, right? I'm not going to buy that multi-billion dollar company at $10 million market cap because it doesn't fit. Um, and then of course, we spend many months trying to assess how you got that return on capital, right? What, what, because it doesn't make any sense if you think about it. Uh, India, like the US, is extremely competitive. India is a small market, but it's a very, very competitive market. So someone making 40% odd return on capital is just at some level nonsense, right? You should say, this doesn't so we try and disprove the hypothesis that this is a sensible company and it takes us many months to do that. And again, we reject many businesses as a result, but some we say, yeah, I mean, this seems to make a lot of sense and, and that we keep uh, track of because we never, we'll, we'll almost never get the price for it, right? Because the market is pretty efficient. Market is not an idiot. And we did, as a result, we just wait. In our 16 year history, we basically invested three times. That's it. I'd like to point out for anyone listening to this program that a 41% average return on invested capital is extremely high. That is fantastic considering that if your return on invested capital is above your weighted average cost of capital and you're holding them for long periods of time, you are compounding equity returns for your shareholders. Uh, congratulations, first of all, for finding those companies that are, that are so profitable and so successful. Um, my colleague, Matt Cochran, and I chatted about investing in India a few years ago. Uh, it was eye-opening. You know, there's several differences that we found then uh, compared to the American market, at least. But per perhaps I'd like to ask you a similar question, which is, could you kind of describe what you just mentioned about India being a very hyper-competitive market? Uh, what are some things that perhaps investors should know about, about Indian publicly traded equities? So I would say, broadly, if you're an American investing in India, there is, there is nothing sort of new to know in some sense. I mean, they're, they're the same industry, same company. The one big thing, as I said, is, is governance risk. Is, is the, if you throw a dart uh, in the private or the public market, it is likely that it land on someone that you don't want to hang out. I'm an Indian, so I can say it, but that's unfortunately true. 
So you have to be extraordinarily careful. Um, in, in, in the book, I give the example of a fund manager in the UK um, who has been, uh, uh, his name is John, John Templeton, I think is the name. Um, he uh, was extremely successful for a very, very long time, uh, over uh, 24, 25 odd years, and um, uh, beat the market, I think, in the UK by six percentage points over more than two decades. Uh, then he launched a 400 million pound fund in China. And basically, he got he was asked to leave in two years' time, essentially because he didn't account for the governance risk that China had that UK didn't have. Right? Mm -hmm. The number of companies were basically lying on their numbers, uh, were fudging their balance sheets um, uh, or their cash flows, and he believed the numbers at their face value. That's the one thing you don't want to do as an American or a Western investor if you want to come to India. Uh, you do want to do a lot of work trying to figure out, not necessarily open the balance sheet and figure it out because you won't be able to in, in some sense because uh, just reported numbers, really the, the integrity of the, of the founder, integrity of the management team. For that, there is a qualitative check that one needs to do. We, we do that check. We'll never invest in a business unless we've done uh, a very thorough qualitative check on the integrity of the management. India also has got some some mega conglomerates out there, right? Whether it's Reliance Group or Tata Group or whoever it is, you know, can can you talk a little bit about the competitive nature of the markets? I mean, how do you compete against uh, these these gigantic companies uh, that dominate the niche? I mean, we've kind of seen some of that. You know, we've got some some really big companies here in America as well, but it seems like that's certainly something you see in India as well. So I wouldn't say they are large in the sense. Well, they are large in one way; they are small in another way. So, for example, take Tata's. They have a very large company called TCS, uh, which is, uh, the, I think, the second largest market cap in India. Forget what it is, maybe $160, $170 billion. Uh, there's one other successful business they have called Titan, and the rest of the businesses are, are, are okay. They are, not, they are not as successful as TCS, for example. Reliance is a very successful business in oil and gas, and rest of the businesses, telecom, also there, it's a duopoly, uh, but it doesn't make high return on capital as yet, I think. Um, uh, similarly, Birlas and many others have, have Lots of businesses, conglomerates have lots of businesses, but they are not necessarily all world beaters. Um, and and we don't we don't invest in conglomerates as a result. So so if you are a, a, a company, independent focused company, the chances of you succeeding against a conglomerate, I think, are pretty high in general. Uh, TCS, of course, is an exception, but maybe that's the exception that proves the rule, right? In general. Um, so whatever industries conglomerates are in, you would also find very focused, disciplined competitors who uh, are are very good at doing what they do. Right and and have been uh, successful at, at for a long period and we are, we are looking for them because then uh, we are really putting uh, sort of money behind someone who's been there done that for a long time um, and and we as investors want to deal really with the principal not with an employee uh, right and the principal uh, by definition if you're a conglomerate you probably don't have time uh, for a company that is uh, one, you know one of your twenty businesses and so it doesn't allow interest. Yeah, as someone who worked for conglomerates, I can certainly say it's very challenging to try to uh, have so many wheels spinning at the same time sometimes. And then maybe our last question is, you know, can you talk a little bit about some of the companies that you like, uh, that you're invested in, or perhaps the sectors that you're most drawn to for the funds? Uh, uh, so when we look back, we, we are very bottoms up sort of uh, folks in the sense that we don't really look at uh, macro, we don't really look at industries. But when I look back now at our portfolio, uh, there are basically three broad areas in which it is in India. One is consumers. Consumers, so we have companies that make paints, that make uh, you know, fans, uh, uh, bulbs, uh, that make uh, soaps, for example. Uh, <coughs> uh, so a, a lot of the uh, pl plastic pipes that, uh, that are get, you know, 
installed in homes. Um, so this uh, paints obviously. Uh, so there's a bunch of consumer-focused businesses that they're investors in. Then there are a bunch of what I what I might call a specialist engineering businesses. So people who make turbines or generator sets or specialty steel pipes or uh, what I call ferrochrome mill internals. These are highly specialized material that cement companies and mining companies use. Um, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, there's a company that makes boilers, for example. So these are all the folks that use old technology. They're not semiconductor type technology, uh, you know, 50, 100 euro technologies, but they made it extremely efficient, number one. Number two, they've actually competed with the global giants in India on equal footing. So example, Trivini Turbine competes with Siemens. Uh, a, com a company we used to own, Kiloskoral Engines, competes with uh, Cummins. And there's a company called Ratnamani that we own that makes specialty steel pipes, competes with Sandvik, right? Uh, so, so all these businesses, uh, there's a company called LG Compressor that competes with uh, uh, the Atlas Copco, which is the world's largest compressor company. So all these guys have been competing with them for many, many decades. Um, and these are oligopolies. There are in each of these industry subsegments, there are very few players that allow them to earn very high returns on capital and have very, very defensive business models. So that's the second piece. And the third is really uh, services exports. So whether it is IT services or whether it is what are called process services. So for example, it, it could be um, uh, outsourcing of uh, mortgage application processing or outsourcing of travel uh, ticketing, for example, or cancellation of ticketing. Uh, those kinds of things get outsourced to uh, India just because it's much, much lower cost. So they have two businesses of that kind and also IT services. We used to own a business called Mindtree that again got sold because it got acquired. So those are the three broad buckets in which we've invested, not because we wanted to, but just because those are the businesses we found attractive. Yeah, and Pulak, I know that you said that you're a, you're a bottoms up investor, but I still have to ask you about the macro anyway, you know, when you, especially with regard to your first pillar, right? No, no big risks. We have seen certainly in America, uh, rising yeah. inflation, rising interest rates, a lot of macroeconomic stuff that's impacting certainly a lot of the tech industry and a lot of other industries as well here. Is it similar in India? Are there similar macro concerns that are on your radar as you're as you're trying to figure out the risks and inherit with any of these companies? So the honest answer is some is that we spend zero time on macro. Uh, macro affects everything, right? So, but but again, if I look back, so I started my career in 1992 and with 30 years. And if I look back at that time, what we used to think are great businesses, frankly, continue to be so. You know, there have been ups and downs and sideways. There have been sanctions in India. And, you know, the, as you said, there have been high inflation, there have been low inflation, there's high interest rate, low interest rate, um, uh, all kinds of, uh, of, obviously, the global financial crisis, um, uh, some, some sort of small, small little war, maybe some terrorist attacks, all kinds of things. But frankly, the great businesses stay great, right? They go through all of this stuff. And in the US, you know, whether you take JP Morgan or PNG or um, any of these great businesses, you know, Walmart and Amazon, they've all gone through ups and downs of these. So the, the honest answer is I spend zero time on it. Literally, we, we don't we don't talk about it. We don't we don't talk to economists. I don't write about it in my letters. We don't take advice from anyone. Uh, we just simply look at businesses. Well, Pula Prasad is the author of What I Learned About Investing from Darwin. His three pillars, again, are avoid big risks, get a fair price, and never sell. I Very refreshing long-term investing approach. It's really a real pleasure having you on the 7 Investing Podcast. Thanks very much for uh, today, Pula. Thank you, Sam. Thanks a lot. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this edition of our 7 Investing Podcast, where it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone.